back in Philippians, continuing in our series there. We're in passages, Philippians 1, verse 27 through 30. I'd encourage you to go ahead and flip there, just kind of get settled in the word there uh, so that you can read it and follow along. Paul's, Paul's letter, this, as I've said a number of times, this is, this is uh, one of his most positive letters in tone. Uh, it's not major doctrinal error that he is... Oh, man, you guys want me to start my timer. I was asked once, you use a timer? Yeah, I'd be glad I do, because I got a lot to say. Whether it's worth listening to or not, that's another, that's debatable. But anyway, let's keep going. Paul, it's, it's, it's a great letter. It's one of the most positive letters that he wrote. There's not major doctrinal error. There's not, there's not major uh, schisms within the church or issues within the church that he's correcting, although he is calling them to rejoice in the gospel, to, to rejoice together as a result of the gospel. Um, and so he greets them. He, pro, he, he just demonstrates in his words his great affection for them. He demonstrates his assurance that God is sovereignly working in them and will finish what he started among them. And, and then he turns and gives some, some indication of what's happening in his own life to encourage the Christians in Philippi that, that though he's chained, the gospel isn't. Though he's facing hardship, the gospel is still advancing. And that ultimately he is rejoicing uh, as a result of that. And, the, and, and, and so though, though it would look like his circumstances are bleak, that, that there is much reason to rejoice because of Jesus and his gospel. And now the, the letter is going to take a turn. It's going to move to a place where he, he, he does this in, in virtually all his letters, that he begins to instruct the church how to live rightly or how to live properly in this fallen, broken world we live. And, and one of the interesting things is, I'm not, I'll, I'll try to highlight this as we work our way through it today. One of the interesting things is, is that in, in other letters, he, he, he builds out a, a, a large doctrinal position, a, a, a strong uh, doctrinal foundation, and from that doctrinal foundation, then his his indicative statements of his statements of fact about who God is, what God's done, who we are because of what God's done, then turns to because this is true. Now you do this. What we see happening in the book of Philippians is because there's not these major issues to deal with. He actually uses his own life as an example, and he shows I'm living this way. And now, as he gives instruction, he says, "You live this way too." You'll see that. He doesn't use the word example exactly. He's going to do that in, in chapter 3. But it's clear that he's not asking these Philippians to do something he's not already practicing in his own life. So you'll see that as we work through, I'm confident. So Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to and see you or am absent... I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for, his, for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." I'm going to pause for dramatic effect there. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father, help us. 
In, in many ways, these words are counterintuitive to everything about how we perceive and, and naturally proceed in this world. Help us not just to hear these words as good and useful for some other group of people that lived so long ago, but that they matter and are important to us. Help us to actually apply them in life and find the joy that comes in doing so. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And it seems to me that everyone has, everyone seems to have some understanding that Christianity comes with a responsibility to live a particular way. This isn't just church folks that think this. This is a cultural perspective that we live in. And so I think, I think that one way to illustrate this is that the world, the culture we live in, the, 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 the place that we inhabit, full of its own hypocrisy, is so quick to point out hypocrites in the church. Let's be honest, we're hypocrites, it's okay, we've got grace, we're likely a little less hypocritical because we've actually confessed we're sinners, <laughs> we're not pretending to be anything but. But, but, but even sinful people understand that to profess faith in Christ comes with a responsibility to live like Christ. And as I don't think this is just an American thing, I think it's worldwide, and, and, and when Bob and I were in Africa, this is last December... We, we, we talked with the man, and we've had, teams have had conversations with this guy. I'll, I'll call him Lee for the sake of our conversation. It's not his name. Uh, they don't use names like that in Africa. But for the sake of our conversation, I'll just call him Lee. Uh, Lee has heard the gospel a number of times. He knows and understands what we're teaching about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. And he asks a question as we're in the middle of a conversation with him this time. He's he says, how can I follow Jesus? Now, normally when we hear that question in these villages that we work, normally that means, what do I need to do to become a Christian? Give me the list of rules to follow that makes me Christian. And so we always have to work out that we don't start with doing, we start with believing. And because we believe, then the doing follows. But he understands. He, 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 he understood that. In fact, he says, no, 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 you... You're misunderstanding why I'm asking. I'm old, very old. In fact, he is one of the oldest men in the village. He's not very healthy. He's become absolutely, completely dependent upon the people that live in the compound that he's a part of. So the village is set up. It's one village, and then, and then they break out these little plots of land where they set up family compounds, and two, three, four generations will live together always. They don't, it's not like the kids get up, grow up, move, and go someplace else. They just live in these family compounds, and this is, this is how they exist together. And each member of the family has responsibilities in, inside the family. And, and so this guy, he's old, he's unhealthy. He, he's not able to go out into the fields and work on his own. He can't raise the food that he needs. He can't herd the cattle that, that, that he might uh, live on and, and butcher for food. He He's just unable physically to do that. He's, I believe he's widowed, and so he doesn't have a wife that's cooking meals for him or a wife that's going to the well. They don't have running water either. That's going to the well and drawing the water that he's going to drink and bathe in and all of that stuff. He, he is absolutely dependent upon the family units that he's connected to to live. And so he says to us in a very practical thing, how can I possibly follow Jesus 
Because if I follow Jesus, I might literally die. Now, just to give you a little backstory, this particular compound is the compound that our first Christian in this village came from. And everything was fine for a few months until his faith, this new Christian's faith, began to confront their Islamic sensibilities. He, he faced persecution. He was beaten and kicked out of the village and ultimately ended up in Spain uh, because that's where he could find to live as a Christian man. This guy's got a real problem, right? He knows the history of his compound. And he knows though they're very friendly and receptive and we have shared numerous Bible teachings in this compound. He knows that when the rubber meets the road, for him to follow Jesus means he may not eat, he may not drink. It's not just even the physical sustenance, the social weight that comes. He may not even be accepted as a member of the family anymore. This is real stuff. This is a real question. We don't try to talk them out of this. This is real life. This is the th- For most of us, instinctively, we understand that following Jesus brings a new way of life that may bring with it some measure of cost. Most of us aren't facing cost to that degree. But Paul... He knew this guy's problem. He knew Lee's issue. He knew Lee's struggle personally. The the Philippians, they knew Lee's struggle personally. And though the cost may not seem as high for us, I still think we often equivocate because we don't want to pay the cost. And we wrestle with this question. How can I possibly really follow the gospel, follow my Savior because I know what might come if I do. Next to Paul's assurance in God's sovereign work in in starting and finishing salvation, it it is his understanding that this responsibility falls right in front of us, that this responsibility of every Christian to live like people who are being saved no matter what the cost. He doesn't, he doesn't allow, his solution isn't, hey, step back. It, 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 isn't, it, it isn't some way uh, equivocate on the gospel. It isn't some way um, um, live, li- live in a way that is minimizing the gospel or hiding the gospel within the four walls of a building and then going and living some other way the rest of the week. It, his solution to the struggles of facing a world that rejects Jesus and often rejects the people that follow him, is this. Only, only, there's not another solution, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. No matter what the cost may appear to be, There's a greater value to give ourselves to. A greater way in which we can live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, now before we go on, there's something hiding right in front of us. Uh, It's it's like hiding in plain sight for us. 
behind these six words in the ESV, let your manner of life be. These six words translate one Greek word, and I'm not going to be able to say it right, but it's, it's something along the lines of politevame, and, and I just totally ruined that, but essentially that's what it is. Um, and, and, and it literally means this, to be citizens or to discharge your obligations as a citizen. Now, automatically, we can think, oh, well, in America, I'm a citizen, so there's certain responsibilities, certain rights I have, certain ways I'm supposed to live because I'm American. <laughs> there's not always agreement about that stuff, but essentially, we understand what that means. But Paul isn't talking about their citizenship in Rome or, or, or their citizenship in this province. He's talking about citizenship in a gospel kingdom. The context doesn't allow for any other interpretation. And in fact, in chapter 3, he's going to call it out particularly, specifically, and build out this idea even further that we are citizens of heaven before we are citizens of this world. And as a result, being citizens of heaven comes with a certain responsibility. Part of that might be to the human governance, but never in spite of the fact that we are citizens of heaven. And so, 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 so this thesis of this sermon, or the general statement of this passage, I think essentially is this. In the gospel of Christ, we have been made citizens of heaven, which is worth living for, and we should now live worthy of. We should do this. It is right and good that we live worthy of it right now. It's the responsibility of every Christian to live obediently to the sovereign God over all other authorities, the sovereign God who is saving us. It is the responsibility of every Christian to live like they are being saved by the gospel that they profess they believe. It is the responsibility of every Christian to ensure that our profession of faith in Jesus is reflected in living like Jesus. This is our responsibility. It is something we should, that we are expected to do. He made us citizens of his kingdom. And because he has, he's delivered us. I think it's Colossians 1, uh, I took a note, 1.13, Colossians 1.13. He delivered us from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. It's not a salvation of works. He's done this work, but in his sovereign work, he's given us responsibility. Our work is always a response to his sovereign work. It's a a response to, to the God who has worked. But it doesn't minimize our responsibility. Stephen Lawson, pastor, theologian, wrote, wrote this. Many of you would be familiar with him. I think he's associated now with Ligonier Ministries. He writes, Grace does not diminish our responsibility to the moral requirements of what God requires. Grace does not lower the standard. Rather, grace enables us to meet it. Grace empowers us to fulfill what God requires. And so, so a few weeks ago, we, we hyper-focused, clear focus on God's sovereign work in salvation. Past, He has saved us, He is saving us, and He will save us. And there is nothing that can change that because our God is sovereign. He initiates the work, He continues the work, and He will finish the work. But nowhere in the work does he remove our responsibility to live as a result of his work. 
His grace actually empowers us to do what He's required of us. That's part of the beauty of the gospel. The old covenant, or the, the, the covenant that, that existed between God and Israel was, here's my commands, now you obey. But there was a, there was a lacking, um, regenerate heart, a hardness of heart, that in the new covenant, He now converts us, regenerates us, gives us life, and therefore not only a desire, but also an ability to do the very things He's commanded us to do. We should do these things. Not only, Paul Paul's brings us so precise, he doesn't allow room for any conversation or debate here. This is the only way for the Christian. Only, there is no higher priority. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. His, his instruction to the Philippians doesn't mean that they can, now, oh, well, well, Paul said only, but let, let's add this to it. He, he doesn't allow any room for that. Everything that we've lived for outside of Christ, when you think about this, this is what he's he's calling them to do. Everything that we lived for outside of Christ and that we continue to live for apart from Christ is connected to, it's bound to a dead and dying world. It is a world that rots and fades and one day will be ultimately well destroyed and restored or depending on your, your, your view of what happens in the end, maybe renewed. But it's connected to that which is dead and dying. Paul is saying now, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Stop living associated with and connected to a world that's dying and start living like you're alive. Stop dying and start living. And when do we do this? When he's watching? No. When somebody tells him about it? No. Whether I come or I'm absent so that I can hear doesn't matter if you're alone in your, in, in your house. doesn't matter if you're in a, a restaurant here in town. It doesn't matter if you're at church or not at church. I used to have these, uh, uh, maybe, and maybe you have this and, and maybe even wrestle with this still, that, that when we come to church, we don't say the cuss words, which I'm fine with that. Don't, don't cuss while you're at church. But if you don't cuss while you're at church, why would you cuss while you're at home? Sorry, that's the illustration in my mind because the equipped class beforehand was all about language. But, but, but we have this way in which we come into this building and all of a sudden we want to pretend we're holy. And that's too harsh. We want to be more intentional about practicing holiness when we come to the building. Right? But when we're off with friends that don't go to church with us or maybe that we've grown comfortable with in Christian culture that don't expect us to live like we're holy, well, we let our, well, we let our hair down, right? We say the things that we wouldn't normally say around the pastor. We act and we tell, we tell the jokes that we know that our, our community group wouldn't laugh at, wouldn't approve of. Whether we think anyone's watching or not, this is the responsibility of Christians to live this way. To live every moment of our lives, at least strive to live every moment of our lives as one who is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Doesn't mean we have made ourselves worthy. Don't, don't misunderstand. We are not worthy. But by the grace of God, the gospel tells us that we can now live like we're worthy. So we're called to, no matter who's watching. And, and, and just look at this. I mean, he recognizes whether I'm there or not, I want to hear about this from you because it'll be an encouragement to me. 
in the same way that I am hoping to encourage you by the fact that I'm rejoicing even though I'm in chains, I'm rejoicing that Christ is proclaimed even though it's Christian people who are bringing this problem to me, even though my experience is bleak, I've got so much to look forward to, so much to live for, and I hope that's an encouragement to you. I want to be encouraged. He's telling them, I want to be encouraged by knowing that nothing is getting in the way of you living the life that honors Christ, that lives the life that, that's a, in a manner worthy of the gospel. This, this is what he's calling them to. So that begs the question, how do we do that? Instinctively, I think we all know. We have the Spirit. The, the law in God's new covenant, the law is written on our We understand what's right and what's wrong. We, we know these things. But praise God, he actually puts it in print so that we can't just be our own, little, our, our own little Holy Spirit and decide what's right and wrong for us. And, but generally speaking, we can know, we can see in the Word. And, and so we're, I've broken it down. You could break it down in different ways. Some people point to three. I've broken it down into six different aspects or di- different perspectives of what it is to live a holy life. And that's really ultimately what we're going to seek to do. So, so, so here's the, the, the thesis. In the gospel of Christ, we've been made citizens of heaven, which is worth living for. It's absolutely worthy of us giving our life for. There's nothing that we can lose that's of more value than being members of this kingdom of heaven. It's worth it. And now we've been called to live worthy of it. And this is how we do that. First, living worthy stands as one people united by the gospel. A worthy life stands united with God's people because of the gospel of Christ. Look at it in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind. Paul Paul realizes that to be Christian is to stand as one people united in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, the, he, he, the, the Father has, has planned it. He's established it. He's decreed it. The Son has come and worked it out. And the Spirit now applies it to our lives. And in this one Spirit, by this one doctrine, we stand together. I, I don't think the importance of Christian unity can, can be overstated. And then next week we're going to see that even further drawn out. But by placing it here, Paul shows us just how important it is. It is is unworthy of the gospel of Christ for us to be a people who are are fractured in relationship and, and, and who are marked by schism and disagreement and conflict with one another. That is unworthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is unworthy of the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection of our Savior, Jesus. So if you can think right now of a person in this room or in the church, Big C Church, that you have a problem with, and you're pretending that that doesn't matter, you have misunderstood the value of unity in the body of Christ. It is unworthy to let that settle, to let that sit and not strive for unity. In fact, Paul's already demonstrated that this is a problem. Paul's already said, hey, these, these Christian people out there preaching Christ, they've, he, he's saying, don't be like that. This is not the way it should be. So Spurgeon once said, the unity of the church is of the utmost importance. 
When there is a want of brotherly love, so when it's missing, the perfect bond is lost. And as a bundle of rods, when once the binding cord is cut, becomes merely a number of weak and single twigs, so it is with the divided church. Let that sit on you for a second. What are we missing by by giving ourselves to schism and argument and debate over various different divisive things? We, we finished a, we, we, we just finished before we came into Philippians and, and went into Advent, we finished a justice series in which I highlighted over and over the schisms that are affecting the church and our witness in this world today. Because we aren't just dividing over doctrinal issues. We are arguing about methodologies and, and tribalizing over, over uh, social interaction. And then we're pretending Each of us, as followers of these leaders with prominent big platforms, we're pretending that one is better than another. And some of us will follow Paul while some follow, not not Paul and Apollos, right? That's not who we're following today. Some of us will follow follow, um, the Gospel Coalition and some will follow Master's Conference. Some of us will follow Tim Keller, Matt Chandler, David Platt, some of us will follow uh, Bodie Bauckham, Tom Askell, John MacArthur. When the differences between these men, and I've actually seen them admit it on stage in front of lots of people, the differences in these men is not doctrinal, that they are lockstep in doctrine. Their differences are methodological and sociological. And by us dividing over these issues that don't even have anything to do with anything other than we our expression of the gospel, but not the formation or the faith in the gospel, we are allowing a schism to displace the unity in the body of Christ, and we are dishonoring the gospel itself. Shame on us. I'm guilty of it. Some of you are guilty of it. Our leaders that we have followed are guilty of it. It is absolutely unacceptable that we have played this game with something as beautiful and majestic as the perfect life, sacrificial death, and victorious resurrection that has saved our souls for all eternity. You hear where I stand and where I'm fighting to be. I have rebuked myself numerous times. I won't rebuke you publicly, but if I end up in a conversation, I will gently, but directly, call you to repent. May it never be that we are a people who tribalize over issues that aren't even doctrines. Now listen, I don't don't want us running off into a place where we ignore sound doctrine. Paul has a clear statement of that in, in Galatians. I already brought this up a couple weeks ago. He is not denying that there's a necessity for sound and right doctrine. If anybody else, even an angel comes to you and preaches another gospel, let him be what? Anathema. Let him be accursed. Right? See, the dangers of being too ecumenical is that we get on platforms and we pretend that we've got partnership with people that don't profess the same doctrines, gospel doctrines that we that we affirm and believe. So, so we face this problem. The last time there was a unity on division event, some of you will be familiar with that event where, where we're trying to stand united 
with brothers and sisters in Christ that racism is absolutely unacceptable in the church. And the leader of that event brought a Roman Catholic priest to speak from the, from the platform. We cannot partner in that event any longer. Because they will choose false doctrines and people who don't teach the gospel to call people to a unity that's impossible apart from the gospel. And when, when that was brought up, it was, oh, no, 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 you're just, doctor, you're, you're just being too, too stringent. with. There's a way to be too dangerous, to, to go too far with being ecumenical, be, meaning that we will unite under the big tent of the gospel. We, 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 we recognize the, the value of, of being diligent in specifying what we believe because it does allow us to partner more closely with like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're part of the Southern Baptist denomination. We're also part of the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. The Acts 29 Church Planting Network has a much tighter, more defined position on certain doctrines. And, and we find it much easier to partner alongside Acts 29 churches and church plants because we know doctrinally where everybody stands in those secondary, tertiary, and quadruple, even their methodologies are almost always very similar. In Southern Baptist Church, uh, we're not pointing fingers at people who, who agree with the, the I forget what, what year they're on, I think it's like the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message or something like that. We're not pointing fingers at them and calling them heretics. They're brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're not upset that God is, is working through that denomination even in, in groups that don't agree as tightly. We're happy for that. We rejoice in that. Even as, as, as denominations like Methodism, and we're concerned about some of the places that these things go, or these denominations will go, and, and, and ways in which they'll equivocate on the righteousness and holiness of God's people. But not every Methodist has, has abandoned the faith. So, so these things do allow us ways in which we can partner more closely with one another. But, but if we go down to the fact that only people are Christian and the only brothers and sisters in Christ that we're going to celebrate are the people who think exactly like us, that's a very small room. In fact, I'm guessing you'll be alone in it. Glad you get to go to heaven, huh? You'll be by yourself. If, that's, if, if you're going to do that, because I can guarantee you, every one, of the, every one of the tribal leaders that you're following in this very divided age, I'm guaranteeing that we can point, I can point you to doctors you wouldn't agree with them on. Why is that one less valuable than another? Just because you've decided in your measurement? It is absolutely unacceptable. It is unworthy of the gospel for us to live like we've lived over these last few years. Christian... The unity of the gospel is worth living for, and we are required to live worthy of it. It is our responsibility. This wasn't supposed to be this direct. It just happened. I'm going to hope that the Spirit's at work in that. I praise Him for even enabling us to consider it and think about it. Living worthy of the gospel, <clears throat> it stands as one people united by the gospel. Next, second, living worthy prioritizes gospel advancement rather than prioritizing our own agenda, right? How many of us have little kingdoms we're trying to establish and build? Every one of us. 
we live in a country where we're able to, to, to make a way in the world, to feel independent of others, to find some, some, some financial security, some place in the world that we call our own, that we, that we run to for, for, uh, for, for safety and for relaxation, for refuge. We call it our home, <laughs> Right? And it's not bad that we have these things. It's not bad that we're able to enjoy this stuff. The problem becomes when we don't prioritize the advancement of the gospel over the pursuit of our own kingdom. And we do this in our families. I mentioned it last week in a, in, in, with an illustration I probably shouldn't have used at this point. But ultimately, we, we do it with our families. We prepare our kids to live here without ever considering what it is to prepare them to live in eternity. We go into the world working with coworkers, trying to figure out how we get along here without ever thinking about their eternal life. We give ourselves to all kinds of effort, all kinds of sacrifice, all kinds of pursuit, all kinds of agendas and priorities that will burn up at judgment. Paul says, I want to hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, standing as one people, striving side by side for building a big church on on the corner so that people will know you're there. Is that what he says? For making sure that you achieve the American dream. Is that what he says? Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the content of doctrine that we, are, we, we recognize. These are the essentials. We can't let them go. These are the, these are the boundary markers that we live for, that, that we live within, and that, that, that are the very foundation of our life. But we give ourselves to seeing, to seeing it advance in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own church, among us, in us, and beyond us. D.A. Carson, uh, many of you will know him, a very intelligent, very, very uh, solid theologian, writes, so, conduct, so conduct worthy of the gospel is in the first instance a corporate unity and steadfastness in defense of the gospel that cheerfully, meekly, and without fear Boy, even that we could go back and try to apply to our life over these last few years. Who's been angry? Who's been fearful? Who's been cheerfully, meekly, and without fear withstands all opposition and boldly promotes the gospel? To put it bluntly, conduct worthy of the gospel is above all conduct, conduct that promotes the gospel. It's a life that doesn't just say, I believe the gospel but exemplifies the gospel, advances the gospel, professes the gospel, makes the gospel known. So rather than showing up to church to participate in such a way that you can consume and go home, you participate to be part of the mission. You attend to worship, but you also participate in the mission of advancing the gospel so that others can worship. Is radically different than the, than, than the typical church culture in America today. We need to hear this. We need to be taught this. We need to be reminded this. Living worthy prioritizes advancement of 
the gospel. Living worthy endures courageously because of the gospel. Look at it. We just keep going. Standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now listen. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. The language there is, is, is a word used to talk about like horses that are running when they're startled by something. Something happens, the, the, the horse jerks and startles and then takes off running. Now this is, I, I think this is where it gets really counterintuitive, right? We, we often think to survive in this world, to live in a, in a culture that doesn't accept us and receive us at all times. We often think that means we keep our heads down, we don't want to make any waves. We don't want to be too Christian, you know, we don't want to be called a holy roller. We don't want to be seen carrying our Bible everywhere we go and... Man, if somebody calls me a Bible thumper as, that, as if that's the worst insult that they can give us. Here, here, Paul's point puts us on the offensive. Not, not to be an offense in the sense of being a jerk. But it puts us on the offensive as if we're moving forward as opposed to cowering in fear. In the military, when we trained, uh, this is the craziest thing because, it's, again, it's counterintuitive. But in basic training and in the in, in, in escape and evasion training that I took when I was in the military. Um, when there's an ambush, we were trained not to run from it and not simply that to, to cower down into cover, although you want cover if you can get it. But if you stay in cover, you're going to be overrun. The best thing to do in an ambush is to turn on the offense and put them on the defense. And you move towards the ambush as opposed to away from it. Who does that? When people are shooting at me, the thing I think is, don't get shot. Well, that's how many of us live our Christian life. But this is always, God has always called his people to this. God, this is not something new. Oh, and now God has changed and because of God. No, this is always his covenant people. This is what's been expected of them all along. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 6 through 7. Joshua is just about to take over from Moses. Moses is not going to go into the promised land. So Joshua is going to take over for him. Israel, under new leadership, is going to um, he, gonna go into the promised land. And this is what God says to them. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then, then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel. So not only have they heard this as a people, Moses is going to say directly to Joshua, be str- for everyone to hear, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with his people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall put them in possession of it. So Paul, here's what's crazy. Paul has understood this. He understands. I'm setting the example, and I'm calling the church to do this very thing. And pastors, elders in this church, I want you to hear this specifically. In the hearing of all the other church, be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. We are leading this people into eternity. Pastor, brother, leader in this church, this is where we're going. Church, this is where we're calling you to go. The Lord is with us. He will not leave us or forsake us. This is his promise to his people. Do we believe him? Do we really trust the gospel that we say is saving us? 
So many of us are so quick to, to say we believe the gospel for some, some, some theoretical moment when we die and face him in heaven. Are we willing to trust it for every decision of our life today? To face the opposition without fear, trusting that God is with us. Well, what if I lose my job? God is with you. What if I'm rejected and cast out of my family? God is with you. It seems so counterintuitive to our, I don't know, lackadaisical way of, of approaching God and the gospel and his life he's given us here. But this is what it looks like to live worthy, to live any less than this, to, to equivocate in any way is to live in an unworthy fashion of the gospel. Thank God for his grace, because who could measure up? But this is the call. Living worthy testifies to salvation through the gospel. So, so here we go. This is the, the result of us not giving back, not being fearful. <laughs> not frightened in anything, picking up in verse 8, 28. Not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction. But of your salvation and that from God, living worthy testifies to salvation through the gospel. We're so quick to think, oh, wait a minute. I don't want to be a jerk, so I'll just, I'll just not say anything. Or, I, don't, I, don't, I, I don't have all the answers, and so I don't think God can use me. I, and we've got all these reasons that we step back, this fear of people, this, this fear of what might come, when God says that if we will fearlessly face the world around us, making the gospel known in our words and in our deeds, that two things will happen. The world that we're so afraid of so often, that world will be convinced of its destruction. It will be given a reason beyond all others to finally turn and believe the gospel. Because they recognize if they don't, they are being destroyed. But it will also demonstrate to them that there is something about you, something that they may not be able to put their finger on right away. But it will convince them of your salvation. It's so backwards to the way we think. But it's right side up in the scheme of the gospel. Oh, we're so filled with all this uncertainty and anxiety and doubt. And, and look, he says you have every reason to live this way. You have every reason to be bold and courageous, to not be fearful. Because actually living this way actually testifies to salvation through the gospel. And there's a case in point in this passage, in, in, in this letter that we've already studied. If you go back up to around verse 14, yes, verse 14, he's talking about his imprisonment. He's talking about the fact that he's imprisoned for Christ, that the gospel is still advancing. But look what happens. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. See how it works itself out among us? See how it becomes a testimony to the world around him and them? This is, this is what he's saying. He, he doesn't tell us that every one of the imperial guard is saved, but every one of them knows that he is in, in chains for Christ. Every one of them has had an opportunity to hear the gospel. And as a result, other brothers in the faith are out there preaching Christ boldly 
without fear because of what they see doing. Living worthy testifies to salvation through the gospel. Living worthy is founded on faith in the God of the gospel. It's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. We don't think that this earns our place, doesn't keep our place, doesn't maintain our position in the kingdom. Living worthy is, is an extension of, it's an expression of the very thing we believe. This is what we fight. I told you in the beginning, we, we, we work diligently in Africa to ensure that they don't hear a list of rules to follow, but they start with the believing that then leads to the doing. Everything we do is generated by something we believe, something we value. And you can see this in Romans chapter 1. I had this conversation just recently. In Romans chapter 1, it breaks it down into two things. Lies we believe... And the things we worship. Behind every sin is, is a lie we believe and a thing we worship or a thing we value. And, and, and he's saying, look, we do this because we have trusted God that he is the one saving us. We don't do this to earn our place or keep our place. We don't think it, it makes us worthy. But because we believe that God is the one who starts, who initiates, who keeps us saved, and who will save us in the end, because we believe that, we live this way. And then finally, living worthy endures persecution for the sake of the gospel. Now, I'm going I'm to put this faith and persecution together in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So, so here we got the faith component, right? And I don't think there's any one of us that feel weird about saying that's a gift. We, we've been given that faith by God. We've been given the faith to believe by God. He initiated the work. He gave us the gift of faith. He enables us to continue ex- expressing faith. And he ensures that we will be faithful to the end. He's the one doing that, but we still have a responsibility to express it. We've been given this gift of faith. We have a responsibility to express it. But I think we, we struggle with this one. It's been given to you. It's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, let's just skip past the first one to the second one. We should suffer for his sake. Now, contextually, we know that he's talking about a specific type of suffering. This isn't just the general everyday, I'm living a holy life and I suffer some things because of my holy life. Or I suffer generally because I live in a fallen world. Or I suffer because of my own sin. Or I suffer because of somebody else's sin. He's saying you're suffering as a result of following Jesus and purposefully seeking to live this worthy life. Your suffering is a gift. In faith, God has oriented our life toward him. He's directed our attention to him. We trust him now. We trust him more than we trust ourselves. We trust him more than we trust others. We trust him. Our life is bound up in believing, trusting him. And in our suffering, he keeps us dependent upon the faith that was initially placed in him. What would we do? Just imagine, what would you do if you trusted in Christ, got saved, and then began life and never had another problem in your life. Even as a believer, how often would you call out on him? We wouldn't need him anymore to the day we face death. Christians do this all the time. We get comfortable. 
We begin to live as if he's just there waiting on us to have a, tr- have, have a problem so he can fix our issue. He's purposefully given us this balance of faith that we can trust him, our attention's oriented to him to begin with, and he gives us difficulty and suffering in this life and in the pursuit of him to continue to cause us to look at him. It's a, it's a discipline of sorts. It's a, it's a directing force of sorts. Living worthy endures persecution for the sake of the gospel. Jason Meyer, in uh, I, I can't remember which commentary it is I'm reading that he wrote, but, but, but he wrote this, persecution is a parable that puts the death and resurrection of Christ on display again and again. Persecutors try to kill the faith of believers like they tried to kill Jesus. We see them doing that to Paul in this, in this letter. But faith rises just like Jesus did. When persecutors try everything in their power to kill faith, but faith refuses to die, resurrection power is on display. Opponents should fear because they are actually fighting God and they will lose. And so this isn't just a directing force for his people. This is a proving to the world around us that he is a saving God. This is a gospel inducing, gospel spreading purpose that identifies us for everyone to see that we are with Jesus. So practically speaking, we're citizens of the same kingdom, so we need to live like it. That's the worthy life. We are united as one people, so we need to act like it. We will be for eternity. Why in the world wouldn't we start practicing it now, right? You don't like me. Well, you're stuck with me forever. Sorry. In heaven, it will be easier because your sin won't be causing problems with me. No, I'm just kidding. My sin won't be causing problems with you. We're united. Let's, let's practice it. We're to participate together in this gospel mission. So rather than coming to community group or coming to church or coming and checking everything out and what's good for me and and does this have everything I want so that I can continue to live my life, think about what you have to offer this body of believers. How desperately we need your gifts, your abilities that God's given you. So find ways to plug in and be known and and get known or, or to know and be known by others. We aren't intended to live as individuals. We are supposed to be. We are not supposed to be the source of persecution. So if you have conflict with people in the church, don't increase their problem by going to members of the church, building sides and building a a, a people who are with you and against your brother and sister in Christ. Don't promote the gospel for for, for out of selfish ambition and personal agendas. That's unworthy and unbecoming of the gospel. There's no way for Christians to live. Let's pray.